This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Monday, January 16th. Wait, there are more documents? Seriously? We start here. President Biden's lawyers find more classified documents at his home in Delaware. These types of security violations are not really that uncommon. We'll talk to someone who used to investigate how papers like this wind up in the wrong hands. The new Congress is ready for its first rumble. One Republican called it a knife fight. Before they blow the roof off, we'll tell you everything you need to know about the debt ceiling. And half of Gen Z is still living with their parents. I'm not spending money on the gas bill. You know, I am going to buy a $60 skincare, you know, lotion. But it's not chuggy if you're slaying that retail therapy game. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. When classified documents were found at the former offices of Joe Biden, the first response of lawmakers basically depended on what party they belonged to. Classified information just out there in the open. For Republicans, this was a moment of vindication. Like, aha, you see all this noise about President Trump holding on to secret documents? The current president did it too. This is Republican hypocrisy at its finest. To which Democrats said, what, are you kidding me? That's a horrible comparison. It's an unfortunate accident, but everything here is being handled by the book. Well, then we found out that in December, war documents were found, this time at President Biden's house. Again, same conversation, except this time the Department of Justice announced it was getting involved. The extraordinary circumstances here require the appointment of a special counsel for this matter. By now, of course, there are several people, including Biden's personal lawyers, actively searching his property to find out... Are there any more out there? Well, this weekend, the chief lawyer at the White House says he got a call informing him that, yes, there were five more classified documents sitting at the Biden home in Wilmington, Delaware. And while Democrats have been willing to give Biden the benefit of the doubt, this is the one thing that politicians absolutely hate. Information drip, drip, dripping out. Every time you try to defend the guy, something else happens. Which is why this weekend, a couple Democrats came out and said, even though they still think everything's been done by the book, they support this investigation into the president and his documents. Let's bring in someone who knows all about classified documents to kind of break this down with us. John Cohen was the acting undersecretary for intelligence and analysis at the Department of Homeland Security. He also worked at the office of the director of national intelligence. He's now an ABC News contributor. So, John, I should point out you were acting undersecretary under President Biden. You resigned last spring when Biden's full time pick was about to be confirmed. But, but you know the space very well then, right? So can I just ask you? How do documents like this just keep popping up everywhere? Like, what is going on? Well, actually, what's important to remember is that, uh, and look, I'm, I'm saying this to somebody who has held a security clearance off and on for over 40 years. I worked in the Clinton administration, the Bush administration, the Obama administration, uh, and as you pointed out, the Biden administration. And I had security clearances had and had broad access to classified information. In fact, uh, during um, some of that time, I also was in charge of offices that conducted security investigations or mm. uh, worked to safeguard classified information. And unless you are working in an organization 
like the CIA or another intelligence community organization where all you're working with is classified information, um, these types of security violations are not really that uncommon. Um, Mm. When you are working with large quantities of documents and you are commingling classified reports with unclassified documents, it is not uncommon for there to be situations where inadvertently people will mix them together and walk out of a SCIF or secured facility uh, with a document they shouldn't have. And when that happens, there is a very well-established process known as a security investigation. And what the security investigation will look at real quickly is how sensitive were the documents, were they clearly marked, How were they mishandled? Meaning, was it an accident? Was it inadvertent? Or was it intentional? If it was intentional, the the investigation will then try to determine, was that intentional mishandling for nefarious purposes? We've had situations where people removed classified information because they were writing a book. Mm, In other cases, people remove classified information because they intend to give it to a foreign adversary. Mm. The latter obviously being much more serious. Uh, So all of that is pretty customary Uh, when looking at a a security violation or an instance where there's been mishandling of classified information. Well, customary seems like the the weird word, though, here, John. Like, you mentioned SCIFs, which are these, like, secure locations. So are those documents always supposed to be viewed in those secure locations, or is it allowable for a public official to take those home, maybe to an unsecured house or a garage or whatever, and look them over there? Like, what are the protocols with the classified stuff specifically? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is it depends. Mm. Um, There are various grades of classified information, uh, some of it requiring much more stringent uh, handling processes. And there's other classified information where you can lock it up in a desk. Mm. Uh, It is not uncommon for um, individuals with classified information, if they have the right storage in their homes, to be able to take classified information at home. Some people actually have SCIFs built into their homes if they have appropriate permission. So what we don't know from some of the breathless reporting that we've heard thus far is what were these documents that were discovered uh, you know, in the garage, uh, in the Biden residence, uh, and in the office? Were they confidential, which really, from a national security perspective, really wouldn't be that that's significant. Most of the security you know, enforcement or the protocols that have to do with protecting and safeguarding that material is on the honor system, hmm. meaning typically the only way that the security officer would know that someone walked out of the office with a, with a top secret or a secret document is because the person who did it reported it. Oh, there's no like sign out system of, hey, hey, Mr. President, Mr. Vice President, you have this in your office. You need to sign this out while you take it home like that. That doesn't exist. There is a very small subset of classified information that there is a sign in and sign out process. But for the overwhelming majority of, you know, confidential, secret, top secret information, um, there are there is not that type of tracking system. So, you know, typically a security... Is that a problem? Wait, is that a problem, John? From your perspective as somebody who's led these investigations, like, does that need to be revamped or are we cool with that? I, I think it's a huge problem, um, you know, and mm. this is why we tend to have so many issues. But think of it this way. There are literally thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people across the federal government and outside of the federal government with security clearances. Mm. The government over the last five, six, seven years has made strides in identifying uh, behavior that could be suspicious uh, on these government systems. So, for example, if you are working at an intelligence organization and your job is to 
analyze uh, intelligence on Russia, but the computer system flags you because you're downloading and printing a lot of intelligence on terrorist organizations, that may result in some type of review. But this idea that every classified paper document is being tracked. It's just, that's just not how the system works. And again, think of it this way. Um, I don't know what your desk is like, but mine's pretty messy. Yeah. Um, and when I was working in some of my offices, um, you know, I would have stacks of paper that were unclassified, stacks of paper that were classified. And I literally had a staff person who every day looked to see what was going into my briefcase to make sure that I didn't accidentally miss a classified piece of information. And accidentally I was about to say, who home. touches these documents is also a thing, right? Because I imagine President Biden's not the one moving his cardboard boxes around when he leaves the his his job as VP. No, and that's going to be a huge part of this re- security review is who actually packed those boxes. You know, were there cover sheets on this information? I've heard some reports that said that these were individual pages. Well, were those pages marked? Did they say top secret or classified on top of it? Were they portion marked, meaning were there little marks in front of each paragraph that said they were classified? You know, we know that the documents in Mar-a-Lago had those cover sheets, right? Those brightly covered cover sheets with big letters stamped on it that said top secret, sensitive compartmented intelligence. Um, But, you know, we have not heard yet whether cover sheets were on the material found in in, in the Biden home. So, you know, there's a lot to learn still. Um, security, you know, security violations sound very, um, you know, very nefarious. But in many cases, they're just accidents. In many cases, there are people who, you know, were a little bit careless or maybe didn't weren't as careful as they should be. And they accidentally mixed up some papers. They got packed in a box and they got stored away. And that'll be another thing that'll be looked at. Um, and it's being looked at in the Miralago case involving former President Trump as well, is when those documents were secured at those locations, who had access to it? You just talked about thousands or hundreds of thousands, like thousands of documents floating around. I mean, Bush, Clinton, Carter, like, should they be checking their houses right now? How like how much of an issue do you think this is with other former presidents and vice presidents? I suspect that because of the visibility um, that the Biden case and the Trump case have generated, uh, that you have a large number of former government officials, whether they be former presidents or or others, who are looking in their basement at boxes that they've stored there since. Is that you? You're a former government official. Do you have boxes full of classified documents we should know about right now, John? Hey, Brad. When I left last time, I didn't want to bring any anything with me. I The only thing I took was a bottle of wine that one of my staffers gave me. I left everything else there. All right. John Cohen, formerly of DHS, now an ABC News contributor. Thank you so much. Nice to be with you. Next up on Start Here, listen, someone near you is going to mention the debt ceiling at some point this week. If you want to at least be able to nod along, you're going to want to listen to this next segment. We all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but when it comes to your health, there should be no compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor, you know the type, like I've had this person before, that doesn't actually listen to you or who seems just in a rush to end your appointment that you spent months making. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and 
insurance. So no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you got more options than you know. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. Go to ZocDoc.com slash start here and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash start here. ZocDoc.com slash start here. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. If House Speaker Kevin McCarthy thought he'd have time for a victory lap, well, that didn't last long. On Friday, Fed Chair Janet Yellen said the nation is coming dangerously close to defaulting on its debt unless it raises the debt limit. On paper, that deadline isn't a particular day of the week. It's a dollar figure. And Yellen now says we'll likely hit that number on Thursday, which means Congress needs to act real soon or we could see a financial crisis on the way. And yet, if we've learned anything from these last couple weeks, it's that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy might not quite have the arm-twisting muscles of his predecessors. Trish Turner is our lead producer on Capitol Hill. Trish, I need you to answer one question this week. Everything else is secondary. Please explain this to me like I'm a fourth grader. What is the debt limit? What is the debt ceiling? (laughs) Well, happily, most fourth graders know what a credit card is. So think of it like that. The federal government has a credit limit. And currently, it's about $31 trillion. So more than your average fourth grader. But it's coming dangerously close. Like you said, the government spent and spent and spent. And so now it needs to move that credit limit out further so it continued to pay the bills. Essentially, Congress imposes that limit on the federal government and only Congress can pass legislation that lifts that limit beyond what it is now. A number of years ago, there began to be a fight um, with Republicans and Democrats. In Washington, more spending and more debt is business as usual. Well, I've got news for Washington. Those days are over. A lot of the fiscal hawks began to say, well, wait a minute, maybe this is a point of leverage. We could use this as a point where maybe we exact like deep spending cuts in exchange. So that really never happened. Like it's really bad to not let this happen. So that means Democrats have to cave on certain things. Yeah, you know, you would think that they would. But here's what happens. So Democrats stiffened their spine and said, look, we shouldn't be playing political football with this. In the past, raising the debt ceiling was routine. Since the 1950s, Congress has always passed it, and every president has signed it. We can negotiate in the regular spending process these cuts you want, what else we might want, but this is different. We would risk sparking a deep economic crisis, this one caused almost entirely by Washington. This is the amount of money we've already spent. We need to lift the limit to pay our bills. And so 
this isn't where we're going to be doing any negotiating. So it worked. We, we, we collided right up against a major crisis in 2011. It roiled the stock markets. The nation's AAA credit rating was downgraded. Ironically, it was then Vice President Biden that stepped in with uh, Mitch McConnell. They found a compromise and they were able to lift the debt limit. But heading into this current political climate, you know, Republicans under House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, they are itching for a fight. Uh, Because this is the nation's credit card. And frankly, it's not us, but next generations that are going to have to pay this. Debt is not something that's just innocuous. In fact, one on Sunday, one Republican called it a knife fight. Mm. They see this as a must-do. They have to deeply cut spending or they're not giving in. The standard of living for America has gotten worse over the last two years. And part of it's this reckless spending. So, Brad, I think... I've been through this a number of times. I've never um, felt a more perilous atmosphere because so much is at risk, you know, if we breach the debt limit. And it feels different in this moment, Trish, because what? Because there's like a a nine seat difference. And so if like five Republicans change their minds about anything, it goes away. Is that is that what makes this moment so fraught? Yeah, that's right. So we saw the the knife fight, to borrow a phrase, that, that Kevin McCarthy went through just to get the gavel, just to be the Speaker of the House. And conservatives, far-right conservatives, fiscal hawks, they held him to an agreement. He signed an agreement that basically said, look, I'm in for deep spending cuts before we lift the debt limit. Oh, wow. And one thing I should say, Brad, um, Back to the debt ceiling, just to explain it a little bit further. So, yes, Thursday is the day that we breached the debt ceiling, that $31 trillion. But Treasury has kind of some ability. It's called extraordinary measures. You'll hear that term a lot over the next few months. Um, Congress isn't going to do this right away. Congress isn't going to do that this week. Hmm. But they have months to before we actually reach what's called the X date. And you'll hear that term a lot probably more than we want to hear. The X date is catastrophe. That's when literally the Treasury Department is out of all of its extraordinary measures. It's exhausted every single thing it can do. We are defaulting on our debt. And that means the stock market plunges, military salaries go unfunded, social security payments aren't made, Medicare benefits aren't you know, sent tax refunds. There's so much. A recession is all but certain. I mean, and we're not talking about just the U.S. then, right? This is going to spiral out into global markets. It means catastrophe. Speaker McCarthy is already trying to reach out to this White House to say, I want to negotiate with President Biden. I'm ready to negotiate. Now the White House is taking that line that Democrats have up to this time taken. And President Biden, through his spokeswoman, said just last week, nope, we're not negotiating. There's been a bipartisan cooperation when it comes to uh, lifting the debt ceiling, and that's how it should be. That's how it should continue. It's not, it's not and should not be a political football. And so it is any man's guess as to where this ends. Yeah, and I think it's important to highlight what you said there. So Janet Yellen says money essentially runs out Thursday, but then you will see haggling negotiations over the coming weeks, maybe even months, as you get closer to that zero hour, that X date, as you said. Uh, Trish Turner, thanks so much. Thanks, Brad. You probably know this about me based on, like, everything that comes out of my mouth. 
I'm an older millennial. I was graduating college right as the financial collapse was about to happen. And at the time, I was one of millions and millions of Americans who moved back in with their parents for like six months while I lined up job prospects. My only goal, I remember, for those six months was to get out, to rent my own apartment. I saved money obsessively. Like, I was beyond frugal. I was cheap. Well, now we're in what looks like the cusp of a recession. Prices are higher than ever. And once again, young people are living with their parents. But the big difference here is how much much they're spending while they're living there. ABC's Elizabeth Schulze covers economics. And Elizabeth, this is kind of like a, a Gen Z twist on a pretty familiar story. It's a Gen Z twist on a story that we've seen when it comes to living at home. Almost half of young adults are living at home. And this is something that we've seen in previous times of recession. After the Great Recession, the number of young adults who moved back in with their parents spiked. We saw during the pandemic a record number of people moved back in with their parents. They wanted to live closer to home. They might have lost their jobs. This is a trend, though, that's stayed really high. Right now, about 48% of people between the ages of 18 and 29 are living with one or more of their parents back at home. Living at home with your parents in your 20s is so underrated. We figure one day, like, this is stupid. Like, you're paying rent over there. I'm paying rent over here. We could just come back together. My first job post-grad, I'm going into a recession, I'm living at home with my parents. Like We're all living at home. We're 26 and up and we're all still living at home. This is the case across the country, Brad. We see that in cities this is the case, but also in suburbs, in more rural areas. Generally, the data does show that places where rent is higher are where more people are living at home. So that gets to one of the key reasons why young adults are choosing to make this decision. And I talked to Lillian Zhang. My name is Lillian Zhang. I currently live with my parents. I don't have any siblings, so it's just the three of us. She's 22 years old. She graduated from college in California and decided to move back in with her parents in the Bay Area. I went to college at UC Berkeley, so very close to home. And I moved back home after finishing school. Ultimately, she was looking at the price of rent. It was two to $3,000 every month. And she said, that's too much for me. It makes more sense for me to be saving that money. So she's living at home. She says it's great. She's saving, but she's also spending her money, Brad. Well, and as a millennial, I always remember peers describing like being ashamed of living at home. Then the more you examine the financial collapse, the further you got away from it, you were like, oh, I have nothing to be ashamed of because there were these economic forces victimizing millions of people. But it's interesting to see these people you spoke to be like, I'm sorry, I don't even understand the need in the first place to participate in this like rental economy with bad roommates and scrimping and saving. And I'm like, I never thought of it that way. Some of the idea, some of the consensus is that, look, why spend the money on rent when you can save it and spend it towards things that might benefit you more in your day-to-day -day life? A lot of it goes to uh, my personal spending, like eating out, hanging out with friends, the occasional travel, which is probably around twice a year. People are spending their money on travel. They're saving up the money for travel experiences. And in an interesting twist here, Brad, analysts at Morgan Stanley actually say that these young adults living at home are helping contribute to the sale of luxury products. Yes, I definitely don't feel as guilty when it comes to buying some things to treat myself. They're so. saving enough money on rent that they're actually buying luxury clothes, handbags, that they're spending money on beauty supplies. So they're actually contributing to this kind of boom for the luxury market because they're this whole kind of generation that has freed up their budgets for those daily necessities like rent or groceries even by living at home. And they're able to help fuel these sales of other goods. And is that because... Like I can imagine somebody being judgmental of that, being like, hey, you're living in your parents' basement. Why are you spending $400, $500 on a handbag or something like that? And yet is, is, is more of a 
philosophy shift, a mentality shift, being like, I'm going to live, like I'm going to do the thing I want to do. And I don't place the same sort of value on these like boomer ideals that you guys all seemed to adhere to for half a century. That's exactly what some of these people told us. So we also spoke with Fabian Flores. My name's Fabian Flores, and I live in Orange County, California, specifically in Santa Ana. He's 29 years old. He's been living with his parents in California and his three siblings, too, by the way. He's been living there his whole life. And he said that really his mindset right now is that because he's home, he has a full-time job. He does chip in when he needs to for his parents. He helps contribute at home. But he doesn't feel bad splurging. I am not looking at the price tags. I'm just, if it looks good, if I look good in it, I'm just going to buy it. He says it's important to him to spend on what he calls retail therapy. So that could look like an expensive facial. It could look like a new outfit. And really kind of said he doesn't even look at the price tag. I'm not spending money on a water bill. I'm not spending money on the gas bill. You know, I am going to buy a $60 skincare, you know, lotion or whatever it is. He doesn't feel bad about kind of investing in himself. And this does seem to be a little bit of a mindset shift. And, and it is a little bit polarizing. It's a, a vibe shift, Elizabeth. The vibe shift is finally here. A vibe. It's a vibe shift. Let's go there. The vibe shift's there. And, you know, you can see the other side where historically out of school, the goal is to move out. The goal is to kind of be on your own, be independent. But what Fabian told us is really part of it is cultural for him. So I'm Mexican and like the, the Mexican culture, um, people don't really, they don't leave their home at such a young age versus in the American culture at 18, you go off to college and you find your own apartment or you dorm or whatnot. One of the themes from talking to these people as well as to kind of economists is until there are kind of broader solutions that look at how expensive housing is in the U.S., this is a trend that's probably going to continue. Yeah, so interesting how in 2008, people sort of realizing like, oh, this is really about like the larger housing market than avocado toast. And now it's more about, again, the housing market compared to Telfar bags or whatever. I'm, again, clearly out of my depth here. Old millennial Elizabeth Schulze. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Brad. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, what did it take for Martin Luther King Day to get signed, sealed, and delivered? One last thing is next. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And one last thing. We're coming to engage in dramatic, non-violent action to call attention to the gulf between promise and fulfillment. Today, of course, is Martin Luther King Day, and it's almost strange to think how young this holiday is. In fact, this year marks 40 years since President Ronald Reagan signed it into law. His life cut short at the age of 39. But those 39 short years had changed America forever. That's right, 1983 didn't even take effect until 86. The efforts to make it a federal holiday go back to 68. People were talking about it even then. That's Nelson George, a filmmaker, music critic, and a writer specializing in black history. John Conyers, who was a congressman from Detroit, and Senator Edward Brooke, 
who was a Republican, but a black Republican from Massachusetts, were the initial forces behind it. We're raising the legitimate issue of a black person having a holiday, and King is doing that work. And he says, considering how relatively recent this all was, it's amazing how easily the very creation of this day can be overlooked. For example, the involvement of Stevie Wonder. Throughout every one of his albums, without a doubt, there was always at least one or maybe two songs that be construed as social commentary songs. Stevie Wonder is known for many, many great songs. Everyone's got their favorite. But on a given day, perhaps the song of his that gets sung the most by regular people across the country is the one simply titled Happy Birthday. Over the last 40, 50 years, whatever, that song has lost some of its meaning to people. People Look, see I know it, that song. I know the Happy Birthday song. Yeah, so everyone knows it as Happy Birthday to you. And... You know, people call it the black happy birthday. But if you could dig into the lyrics, it's a very explicit song about celebrating King. At this point, Stevie Wonder was a huge star, and he was going all in on getting a day on the calendar to recognize King. So in January of 1981, he brought this new song of his and a huge crowd to Washington for a massive rally. I went down to uh, D.C. I had just got my first nine-to-five job as a journalist. I was working at a publication called Record World. What I remember is it being very cold and I'm, you know, outside. I got into about the middle of the pack. I just remember him, him talking and, you know, very passionately about the need for this holiday. As an artist, my purpose is to communicate the message that can better improve the lives of all of us. It had a profound effect. In 1982, Stevie Wonder returned, this time with a petition that included more than six billion signatures demanding this day be recognized. We understand why we are here and what we must do. By 1983, 40 years ago this year, Wonder decided not to hold his big shindig. Instead, he went inside the Capitol to advocate at a legislative session. And continue to be in Washington until the bill was passed. There was pushback here, from the cost of shutting down the federal workforce for a day to claims about King's character that often sounded like thinly-veiled racism. The other argument against it was a little more substantial, which is he was never elected official. You know, why are we giving a, a private citizen this holiday? I would have preferred a day similar to, say, Lincoln's uh, birthday, which is not technically a national holiday. And the only other person I believe who had a national holiday at that time who wasn't in, was Christopher Columbus. And this, Nelson George says, is key to understanding why Martin Luther King Day is so unique. It doesn't just commemorate a person or a singular event. It takes a historical concept, a movement, and cements it in the national conversation. It means every year the country has to discuss civil rights. If you talk about Dr. King, then why are we talking about Dr. King? It leads to a discussion about history that I think that a lot of places in the country would rather not talk about. It also highlights how regular people can make a difference. You don't have to be an elected official or a war hero in this country. From a blind musician to a woman taking her seat on a bus or a reverend from Atlanta, Georgia, the time is always right to do right. May you have a memorable Martin Luther King Day wherever you are today. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. 
The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.